Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio heard from a public defender turned author, discussed our neighborhood's urban plan, and chatted with the folks behind one of our leading museums. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on our 75th Lumpin' Week in Review, airing originally on July 20th, 2018. Radio Free spoke to Noah Bogus of the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. CMAP is currently examining ways to transform underutilized areas in Bridgeport and Canaryville. Bogus explained how community members are driving the project, what role the arts play, and what may become of the Daily Library. Radio Free with John Daly airs Tuesdays, Drive Time. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We were just talking about community building, and we have a representative from the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for planning. Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. My name is Noah Bogus. I'm an assistant planner with CMAP, uh, as we call it. So uh, community planner, community builder, that's right up my alley. What, what does CMAP stand for? Stands for the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Um, so we serve the seven counties, uh, 284 municipalities that surround the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, I work for a branch called Local Technical Assistance. So, you know, we just go provide planning assistance um, to communities that ask for our help. So, um, you know, we do what we can to make land use, uh, development decisions, transportation, parks, and open space. Um, that's kind of the umbrella that we uh, that we uh, fall under. Noah, how did you get involved in planning? Well, I'm a DePaul grad. Um, I went to DePaul two times uh, for undergrad, and then I stuck around um, for grad school. Uh, my master's program was called Sustainable Urban Development um, that I got into because I took some some urban planning classes in undergrad, and it just it, uh, it looked like something that was interesting, especially being in this city. And then part of my um, graduate studies was doing community building on the west side of Chicago. So I looked at how you can repurpose vacant lots into community gardens. Um, Hmm. And making spaces that are, you know, useful to um, to the people that already live there and kind of, you know, um, reinvigorating communities and, and doing that. I just loved it. So I was always trying to figure out how to get back to that. Um, after I finished undergrad, I did about a year and a half of research, um, a place called the Institute for Housing Studies. Um, so just kind of cut my teeth, uh, learning data and analytical skills. And the position opened up at CMAP, and I've been there for about 18 months, um, getting to know the region and, and all the diverse communities that make it up. It's it's a lot of fun. I mean, most of my uh, coworkers are in the office right now typing away, and I'm here on air with you guys. So I've Though been it is 95 it. degrees in, in this studio, so you, if they're listening, it's much cooler in the office <laughs> where you guys are typing. I away. am sweating. Not yeah. nervous, just sweating. Yeah. No, you just mentioned that there are a whole bunch of – we're kind of famous in Illinois for having – lots of government at lots of bodies of government sure um, so you're coordinating through a whole bunch of people and 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 uh, uh, tax entities mm -hmm. so what exactly uh, is the technical assistance that you're providing yeah so as I mentioned um, we're application based so uh, the 11th district of Cook County and the 11th ward of Chicago teamed up for an application um, to kind of have us come in here and do a plan for Bridgeport and Canaryville um, that strengthens local assets, uh, looks at making sustainable economic development, um, smart long-term housing choices, maximizing the parks and open space that can sometimes be difficult to come by in such a dense urban setting. Um, so the technical assistance that we're providing for this uh, project we're calling a priorities plan. 
is we're really just trying to get a baseline for what's going on in the communities right now and give them some advice as to how best to move forward um, and realize their goals. So a lot of what we're doing here is setting the agenda for future development processes. And, and we're doing that because it is a, it's a unique study area um, and it's one that hasn't had a lot of urban planning projects that have been done here recently. A lot of our work sometimes is updating comprehensive plans that are maybe 10 years old or 15 or something like that. But for such a, for such a unique community um, and a unique community area, um, we're really kind of thinking about just understanding what people here think about their communities. What are their assets? What do they want to see maintained and what do they want to see changed? So um, we're here to ask people those questions and to have those conversations um, to combine that with some data and some map work and, and really get a feel for what the next step of the communities should be and how they can, again, you know, realize those goals and visions that they have. So I know you have an event coming up. Mm -hmm. We do. Um, yeah, so we're moving into uh, the community outreach aspect of the plan, which is really my favorite. I love being out here. Um, it's next week at the Joby Arts Center, uh, Wednesday, July 25th from 6 to 8 p.m. It's going to be an open house style event. I, I didn't want this to be, um, you know, a presentation where a bunch of people just sat there, probably, you know, in a hot room and, and listened to a public servant talk for two hours. So we're going to have five or six tables set up. Um, they will all be staffed uh, by a representative from our agency. So we just want you to come down and have a conversation with us. We'll have some maps that you can scratch on, um, you know, showing us some of your favorite spots in the community where you think we need to draw our attention to um, and just trying to understand what your vision is for the future of the community. Uh, and we will have translators on site as well um, for Spanish and Mandarin speakers. When you look at the just kind of raw assets, Noah, not not including um, what the stakeholders in the community think about. What are some of the whether it's streets mm -hmm. or uh, you know the river itself? What are some of the assets that you've paid attention to? Well, I mean, you we start by going back, right? Uh, the history of these communities. Um, you know, when you when you sort of think about the proximity to the stockyards um, in a really strong you know Irish traditions that are here. Uh, combined with the current cultural diversity, this is one of the most diverse communities um, in the city of Chicago. You have a huge Latino population, a huge Chinese population as well. And those are some cultural advantages that it's really, really hard to find. And you can't really set that up. They just kind of happen. Um, you talked a little bit about the river. That's a huge asset as well. We can't really move those, although we can change the flow if we try hard enough. Um, Paul Masano. Yeah, St. Louis. <laughs> Um, Palmasano is amazing. It's one of my favorite um, open spaces in the city. Um, it, it's pretty cool to think about, you know, spending an afternoon there fishing, and then you can have really, really authentic Chinese food across the street. Um, Morgan Avenue out here and all the cultural institutions, the art centers that are here, um, you know, the new boathouse where we're having this event. Those are some, some really cool things that you don't find anywhere else as well. So, um, I've also noticed working on this plan that there's just a pride that these communities, Bridgeport and Canaryville, have that you don't really see anywhere else. Um, it's, it's really cool to see. It's really cool to be a part of. And I think everybody will have their own list of things that make this community a strong asset. And that's what we're excited to find out as well. Um, you know, it's really pretty well served by transportation. We always talk about that as, as urban planners as well. Um, you know, you got your bus lines, the, the orange and the red lines are right here as well. So it's a, it's a very well 
located community with a bright future, I think. What have community members brought up as concerns to you? I know that uh, during the last meeting, the Richard Daly uh, Library was brought up quite a bit as a perhaps underutilized space. And I know that there were some concerns from community members about the sense that Bridgeport and Canaryville, um, I wouldn't say they're on the decline, but Mm -hmm. there still is a lot of underutilized storefront space. And this is something we talk about frequently on this show. Um, There is a sense perhaps in the community that the community, while it has changed to become more diverse, still hasn't really utilized the full potential of what's here. Mm-hmm. Is that Were those some of the concerns that were echoed to you guys during your initial meetings here, too? Yeah, I mean, we hear about the underutilized storefronts quite a bit. Um, a lot of people have ideas for what they want to do. They want to be entrepreneurs and open businesses, and they want to make sure that those are going to be safe investments. Um, so we're trying to figure out how we can you know, help make sure that those are um there has um also been a lot of discussion about some of those parks and open spaces that they have making sure that those are usable facilities and that it's it's just really an open sort of process um when people ask them you know what they want to use their park spaces for uh as i mentioned it's it's a it's a dense city so it's pretty rare that you can find a lot of park space so finding ways that you can really leverage those year round and make sure that people have opportunities um, people want to shop in this community as well they don't want to leave um, they don't want their investments to go elsewhere so they want to make sure that they can get all of their goods and services here within their own community um, and they want to stay here too that's something that we've been always sort of hearing about especially you know with the proximity to neighborhoods like pilsen um, a lot of younger folks want to make sure that this is a community that they can stay and raise a family in and that they can, t- can t- I'm sorry, that they can continue um, to afford their homes here and, and really plant roots here. So, but again, we, uh, we expect to speak to a lot more people. So, um, you know, if you're listening and, and I'm not covering the topics that you want covered, by all means, make sure that you come uh, and let me know what's on your mind. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Neil Lowline and Andrea Hector, members of the International Socialist Organization in town for the Socialism 2018 conference, about leftist perspectives on infrastructure. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. Neil, Andrea, how are you guys? Doing great. Thanks, Kiefer. Yeah, yeah. Su- super happy to have you. Um, maybe you guys can introduce yourselves. Um, tell us why you're in town. I know why you're in town. It's for a super cool reason. <laughs> sure. We're here for a conference. It's a conference of the International Socialist Organization, Socialism 2018, talking about building the left, um, both in Chicago, across the across the nation, and some perspectives and conversation about international um, struggles, kind of what's happening all over the country, and talking about theory, history, all those things. Yeah, it's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and what do you guys do that makes you int- like good candidates for buildings on air uh, beyond the general leftism? <laughs> 
Well, um, I work in the in the with this uh, for the city of Portland. Um, I'm not a planner, but I do do geographic information systems. So I do GIS work, um, and so I'm in those conversations. And I've always kind of been interested in the built environment. So I've, you know, been a you know strong advocate of, of, of trying to find ways of making the built environment actually built in the interests of, of workers and, and, and poor people in the masses as opposed to the way it tends to be built now, which is for the people with all the power and the money in the agency at this point. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I am a structural engineer. Um, I currently practice in New York, but I lived in Portland for about 10 years. So I, Neil and I kind of discussed these types of ideas for, for yeah. many, many years, talked about gentrification kind of before and while it was happening. Um, you know, I've kind of followed architectural design and architectural practice and try to integrate the beyond just math part of engineering into how do we impact the built environment and what impact do we as designers beyond simply the architectural profession but designers as a whole have on society and why is it that we are so separated from the vast majority of people that use the buildings infrastructure that yeah we design yeah so. totally yeah and i'm super happy that um you guys were in town and this conference was happening um on a buildings on air weekend because <laughs> I, I i knew the second i saw that i was like gotta get someone uh uh into the into the booth <laughs> and then i saw uh, on the schedule that uh, neil gave a fantastic talk on infrastructure um uh the other day and i was like this is great uh, especially since infrastructure is a really hot topic right now um, for progressive architects to be thinking about and thinking through. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, I thought maybe a good place to start um, was something, a kind of provocation, maybe like the thesis of, of your talk, which was this this question of like, okay, so the right wing, like even Donald Trump, right? The left wing, like everyone, like wants to improve the nation's crummy infrastructure. And you kind of highlighted like all of the, with, with some very important notable exceptions I imagine we'll get to, but you highlighted kind of the state of the nation's infrastructure. It had uh, D ratings from the civil engineers, like um, there's real problems here. But there's this big question. If, if everyone from every point of the political spectrum seems to agree that, uh, you know, this is something that's a problem, then like how is there still no kind of motion on it? Which I think is a really interesting question. Um, and, and, and your talk kind of had, had some ideas about that yeah yeah well yeah it is it's a it it is sort of a interesting sort of conundrum that like everyone's saying it's a problem across the spectrum and yet uh very little is being done about it um and i guess what what i the the conclusions that i've i've come to at this point and, and they may change at some uh at some point is that um since the early 70s the u.s there was a global economic crisis and there was a, a new a new um understanding of how to run the economy called neoliberalism and involved uh first and foremost an attack on working class uh people uh particularly uh it started you know in in, in north america and britain under reagan and thatcher mm-hmm. um but it also involved uh, a, a privatization of of public in uh public institutions, infrastructure, things like that, um, as well as deregulation and things like that. Um, and and what, what I think happens, and this is borrowing from the Scottish Marxist Neil Davidson, is that there's a contradiction in which you continue to cut taxes and continue to, to – uh, 
stop spending money on infrastructure, important infrastructure, because this is sort of like the the um, the the doctrine that these regimes, these neoliberal liberal regimes, are following to the point where like even uh, the the way that capitalism depends on infrastructure mm-hmm. winds up it, it winds up collapsing, and they lose, um, according to the the Senate Democrats, like two hundred billion dollars a year. Um, it, it, I mean, David Harvey's talks about how Marx uh, talks about capitalism as being value in motion. And if your circuit for trying to get something from here to here breaks down, you're, 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 you're throwing a wrench in the gears. Yeah. And that's kind of the conundrum. Like, why is that? And so I think there's this sort of, um, there's this sort of like almost a, not really a self-destructive logic, but a logic in which neoliberalism is actually undermining the ways in which capitalism can um, continue to grow yeah. um, in certain ways. And, that in, and then in other ways, it's found ways to grow and expand and find places to make profits and, you know, what Marx would say, accumulate, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this idea is like, it's really fascinating that, that even though it might be in the long-term interest of kind of, everyone uh capitalists included uh capitalists especially that they kind of put an investment because it's so long-term in nature and 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 they're focused so much on short-term gain uh and structurally focused on short-term gain um not kind of morally or ethically or like it's it's not like a mindset thing um it's 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 a bigger issue than that that they that they just simply don't end up doing this especially and, and that's kind of compounded by um, other forms of oppression and and uh, uh, racism and et cetera. And underserved areas keep getting more underserved and et cetera. Yeah. So I I, I mean I it's a fascinating idea and I, and I I think also one of the things I appreciated in your talk was the kind of breadth. Um, uh, by which you, th- you you defined infrastructure and talked about some of these issues, right? Because I think one's brain first jumps to like infrastructure as roads, <laughs> but like dumb question uh, after we like hit the hard theory, like dumb question, uh, what is infrastructure? Because <laughs> it's so much, and I think like you spend all the time, uh, a, a lot of your time mapping it, I imagine, um, and then we in our our profession uh, spend a lot of time making sure that um, it's in the right place and not running into anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, so, so what is it? Uh, big question. Yeah, bro- I mean, the AS, so people frequently, and you mentioned, you alluded to the ASCE, American Society of Civil Engineers yeah. report earlier, yeah. which comes out every four years and talks about the state of America's infrastructure. And it actually breaks down infrastructure. I think it's nine different categories, um, roads, airports, um, you know, you could talk about water, which which encompasses a huge like water, wastewater, electrical infrastructure and electrical grid. I mean, when we think about infrastructure and we talk about that, it really is everything that pretty much makes the world work from like a built environment standpoint could right. somehow fall into that infrastructure mm. category. Yeah. Yeah, and and then there's the question of like who pays for that, right? Which is related to this question about neoliberalism, and uh, you know, I guess traditionally it's it's been the kind of the government in in large part, not entirely, um, because it's a kind of it's a great example of resources that are generally shared, <laughs> or or uh, encompass or, or used if not shared. That's maybe the wrong word, but uh, used by many stakeholders or different groups of people. Um, and and the, the kind of political institutions that we build seem like the logical place for that kind of thing to happen. But um, one of the other things that was highlighted in the conversation 
conversation yesterday was that even that kind of situation is changing. Um, I think another kind of important touchstone in this conversation is that all of these everything in this kind of nine categories is is kind of being uh, paid for or uh, these projects are being realized through this kind of mechanism of a public-private partnership or a P3. Um, so what, what it, tell us what that is. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I'll have to give you like a really short definition and it's certainly not inclusive, uh, you know, it doesn't encompass everything, but, you, you know, it's, it's it, maybe it's helpful. So, um, and, and, and just to say, I think it depends kind of on what the infrastructure system you're talking about as to whether it's public or private, because the electric yeah. electrical grids, a lot of them, I mean, some of them were, were public and, in, uh, uh, in, in, you know, some of the New Deal ones, but a lot of them actually emerged out of, you know, like Edison and stuff like that and devel uh, developing sure. small grids and actually making monopoly agreements with cities oh, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, and then the interesting thing is that another comrade brought up in the discussion was that the New York subway actually used to be owned by multiple private <laughs> entities. Right. And then they ran it into the ground and then it became public, right? Yeah. And so that's why it still has this like 1920s, 1930s signal system, right? Like yeah. it's, it's a, you know, the capitalists were just happy to just dump it and be like, all right, now you need to take care of it. Sure. Um, but anyways, public-private partnerships. Sorry about that. Um, it's They tend to be a agreements where um, private entities or investors or things like that, companies, um, enter into some sort of government-mandated plan um, to build, say, something like a highway or some sort of um, project in which they're given a certain level of control over like how it's built. Maybe they're even the contractors. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, they are often given the leverage to actually collect user fees or tolls or things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and it's been much more popular in places like Europe and actually in, in, in the global south than America, but now it's becoming more and more um, popular in the U.S. Mm. Um, as, a, as a model for finding ways. The, 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 the things that I think are kind of worth flagging are that, first of all, like as David Harvey says in The Brief History of Neoliberalism, it's a way for the private market to sort of like inject or sort of incorporate its logic into public mm. um, functions, right? And so that means there's a pressure a lot of times um, to make workers work faster or harder for less. There is a, uh, a logic to cut costs on materials, to sort of find ways of making as much money as possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and those sort of things, I haven't done a ton of, I haven't found a ton of research on it, but that idea of like, you know, those could even lead to uh, right. possible collapses in, in newer infrastructure. Um, but then the other thing is the user fees, right? And I think Chicago is has that <laughs> notorious P3 where it's the... the um, parking meters where yes. like people got gouged there yes. Indiana tollway got you know they had to raise they were subsidizing basically this public private partnership on the tollway and then they raised the price and it just like I think it went double or triple I can't remember the numbers yeah. or something like that but it was like it was a huge jump so I mean these are these are the things like in the interest the other flag I think that's worth or the, the other thing that's worth talking about is that like if it's the market logic that's determining these projects what gets built and what get, doesn't get built right. it means that places you know communities that don't aren't seen as like um, uh communities that are going to be able to like pay user fees or tolls or something like that or it's not going to be advantage right. uh, advantageous for the 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 firms to actually make money off of they're going to be underserved mm -hmm. like right. they'll be completely bypassed in some cases yeah on this episode we're talking about bonding 
And we're going to one of my favorite spots in Bridgeport. All right, hold on now. I just got to... Are you tagging right. the bus stop? Ah, squatter code. Let's others know what's going on. Do all you guys use it? Oh, you better believe it. Some of the guys I know can't even spell Bridgeport, so these glyphs is all they got, you know? Can't spell you nothing. You get phones and use emoji. Emoji? Uh, they're smiley faces and pictures. Um, sometimes it can be tough to get emotions through text messages. <laughs> why, don't, why don't no one just pick up the phone? Uh, people are crippled by luxury. Thank you. Finally, someone says what I've been saying for years. <laughs> You're a very eloquent speaker, Jessica. Thank you, Kyle. Say, where'd you live before you moved to Bridgeport? Oh, uh, sort of southwest of here. Joliet area. Oh, yeah? What were you doing down there? Uh, catching up on reading, mostly. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, that's, that's oh, cool. Oh, wait. Look. Someone drew a squatter code on this light pole. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a very good eye, Jessica. You see the square? This means the campsite stash. Sweet. What's in a stash? Ah, uh, you know, supplies, food, drinks, stuff like that. We're at a gravel-filled vacant lot right with the, overgrowth the and a lot of tires. Ah, curse word. What? There was a hole in the fence right here, and the city patched it, I guess. Ah, uh, damn, I'm too old to be jumping fences. <laughs> oh, well, hold on. There's a gate. Yeah, it's padlocked. Oh, uh, let me see. jump, but... I'm too yeah, old. Just, My um, hips, just a little gonna... jiggle here, and the tumbler should... Pa! There we go. You just picked a padlock? Where'd you learn how to do that? Well, you can only read so many books, Kyle. I'm very intrigued and slightly frightened. Hey, come on. Let's see what's in this stash of yours. It's over there in the weeds. Oh, the cooler? Go ahead and open it. Looks like skunked beer and a book of matches. What do we do with this? <coughs> Welcome to your first official Bridgeport tire fire. My throat is burning. <coughs> Used to be you could find tire fires every night of the week. How? Why'd they stop? All them guys are dead. <coughs> From what? I think they died of black lung. <coughs> All of them? <coughs> yeah. We should probably go. <laughs> I think I'm good here. Now we should go. Tire smoke's habit forming. Put something over Sure it face. is. I, I can leave whenever I want. <laughs> we should go. Trust me. Listen, listen, I know it's early, but I think you already need to quit tire fires. Don't judge me. No. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna shut right. this thing off. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump is called a traitor and treasonous as he meets with Vladimir Putin. Twelve Russians are indicted after election interference in the United States. Congress descends into chaos as an FBI agent is questioned. NATO is attacked. And the Supreme Court nominee is in debt. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 539, July 12th. Trump said he might recognize Russia's annexation of Crimea. That hostile takeover of Ukrainian territory led the G7 to sanction Russia and to eject them from the group. In a bizarre attack on NATO, Trump threatened grave consequences if they didn't boost their military spending by January, adding that the U.S. could, quote, go our own way. Trump reportedly arrived late to the NATO meetings, interrupted a meeting in progress, and then delivered what one official called a prolonged rant. Trump then gave a press conference in which he reaffirmed his support for NATO, calling his threat to withdraw from the alliance unnecessary. Quote, they will increase their defense budgets like they never have before. Trump also called himself a very stable genius and said he deserved total credit. 
That exchange had NATO officials denying Trump's claims, adding that they merely committed to spending 2% of their GDP on defense. French President Emmanuel Macron alleged that Trump never at any moment in public or private threatened to withdraw from NATO, which of course Trump had publicly said he did. In a combative and chaotic congressional hearing, FBI agent Peter Strzok strongly denied Republican accusations that he led his personal political views bias actions in the Hillary Clinton email and Russia investigations. Strzok, who was visibly angry during the questioning, called Republican attacks against him, quote, another victory notch in Putin's belt and another milestone in our enemy's campaign to tear America apart. Republicans threatened Strzok with contempt as the hearing devolved into name-calling and personal attacks. One Republican accused Strzok of cheating on his wife with colleague Lisa Page. Republicans and Trump are charging that Strzok's text messages undermine the integrity of Robert Mueller's investigation. In fact, Strzok was immediately removed from the Mueller probe when the text messages came to light. Under new guidance from Attorney General Jeff Sessions, thousands of asylum seekers will now be turned away before they have an opportunity to plead their case in court. The new guidance instructs asylum officers to reject claims based on fears of gang and domestic violence. In addition, any person that spends more than two weeks in Mexico will be rejected. It takes a month to caught. It takes one month to cross that nation. Day 540, July 13th. Overshadowing Trump's visit to England, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced indictments against 12 Russian intelligence officials on charges of hacking into the DNC, DCC, and state election offices to steal and release documents in an attempt to influence the 2016 presidential election. Trump was meeting with the Queen while Rosenstein announced those indictments on the officials. Rosenstein has made a habit of announcing major developments in the Russian investigation when Trump is on the cusp of meeting world leaders. Rosenstein also noted that on the day Trump, as a candidate, asked Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails, they did. Russia, if you are listening, Trump said on July 27, 2016, I hope you are able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by the press. That evening, Russia began their hack of Democratic operatives. Dan Coates said that the warning lights are blinking red again from cyber attacks by Russia and other nations. Coates said, quote, the digital infrastructure that serves this country is literally under attack. Coates' strong words came on the heels of revelations that Illinois was one of the states targeted by Russian hackers. Trump also created a diplomatic imbroglio by criticizing Prime Minister Theresa May hours before meeting her in England. May's government is teetering due to the defection of so-called hard Brexiteers who want to leave the European Union. That has been dismissed by most as a practical impossibility given the huge and historic ties between the two nations as well as the global network that now links most businesses. But in an interview with Rupert Murdoch's son, Trump claimed he told May how to negotiate the UK's exit from the EU, but she, quote, went the opposite way. He also accused European leaders of, quote, destroying their culture and identity by letting in millions of migrants. Trump also said he felt unwelcome in London, referring to anti-Trump protesters that have flooded the streets of the nation's capital. Later, during a joint press conference with May, Trump dismissed his interview with The Sun as fake news. May later said that Trump had told her to sue the European Union. New Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh racked up thousands of dollars in credit card debt from buying baseball tickets over the last decade. Kavanaugh is an unusual figure in that he has never engaged in private practice as a lawyer. He has assets far below his fellow Supreme Court justices. They have an average net worth north of a million dollars apiece. A scathing report says that $341,000 was spent by former Trump cabinet member Tom Price in a grossly improper fashion. Price was forced out last year following media reports of his extravagant use of private and military aircraft. Price has voluntarily repaid about $60,000 to the government. Day 541, July 14th. 
Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced he will sell all of the remaining stock he holds after he was warned of, quote, a potential for a serious criminal violation. The warning from the GEO faulted Ross for shorting certain positions that, quote, appear to have been an ineffective attempt to remedy your actual failure to divest your assets per your ethics agreement. Prince Charles and Prince William refused to meet Trump and his wife Melania on their visit to the UK. Queen Elizabeth II was left alone to receive the Trumps. The absence of the two princes during Trump's visit was a snub, said one insider. They simply refused to attend. The wife of the new head of White House Communications, Bill Shine, mocked victims of sexual harassment in the military. Darla Shine, the wife of Trump's deputy chief of staff for communications, declared herself a sexist and said women serving with men in the military should expect to be sexually harassed. She also endorsed false claims on vaccines and autism. Trump has not given out annual medals for the arts since he took office. The National Medal of the Arts and the National Humanities Medal have both sat fallow. The deadline for nominations for the 2016 Arts Medals, which have yet to be awarded, was last February. Day 542, July 15th. Trump has raised more than $88 million for his re-election campaign over the last year and a half, giving him a huge head start on any Democratic challengers in the 2020 race. Trump's campaign committee, combined with two joint committees formed with the Republican Party, ended last month with nearly $53.6 million in the bank, almost $10 million more than their previous largest balance. China filed a complaint with the World Trade Organization over Trump's plan for tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. China says the tariffs are illegal attempts at protectionism. Day 543, July 16th. In a shock decision, FCC Chairman Ijit Pai announced that due to serious concerns about Sinclair Broadcast Group's acquisitions of Tribune Media, he will send that deal into a process that effectively torpedoes it. The evidence we've received suggests that certain station divestitures that have been proposed to the FCC would allow Sinclair to control those stations in practice, even not in name, and that is in violation of the law. Pai's decision is a major blow for Sinclair. The group openly favors Trump in its coverage via must-run segments pumped into its network of stations. Pai's move is even more surprising considering he had made several prior decisions that had aided Sinclair's acquisitions to the point that he was under investigation by agency watchdogs. Trump said he accepted Vladimir Putin's denial of meddling in the 2016 U.S. presidential election over the findings of his own intelligence agencies. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial. Today, Trump acknowledged that Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, had told him that Russia was behind the cyber attack on American democracy, but Putin insisted it was not. I don't see any reason why it would be, Trump said. He then went into a rambling discussion about Hillary Clinton. Trump also called Robert Mueller's probe ridiculous and a disaster for our country during his press conference. Getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing. I think the world wants to see us get along. Trump later tweeted that Mueller's probe is a rigged witch hunt. In an interesting tidbit, Vladimir Putin did not deny having compromising material on Trump when he was directly asked at the news conference. Said Putin, I know how these dossiers are made up. I did hear this rumor. When Trump visited Moscow back then, I didn't even know he was in Moscow. The Justice Department charged a Russian national, Maria Butina, with trying to infiltrate the NRA and creating a backline channel of communications to the Kremlin. The charges were filed under seal the day after 12 Russian intelligence officers were indicted for hacking Democratic computers. They were unsealed following Trump's press conference with Vladimir Putin. Day 544, July 17th. The fallout from Trump's appearance with Vladimir Putin continued as Congress debated censure and bipartisan outrage welled. John McCain and Paul Ryan slammed Trump, said McCain. The press conference in Helsinki was one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in memory. The damage inflicted by Trump's naivete, egotism, false equivalence, and sympathy for autocrats is difficult to calculate. 
Former CIA director James Clapper was stronger, calling Trump's comments treason. Dan Coats released a statement that was not vetted by the White House that slammed Trump as well. Trump's own advisor, John Bolton, said he finds it hard to believe Putin didn't know about Russian intelligence officials to interfere in the 2016 election. In the midst of this, Trump tweeted that his meeting with Putin was, quote, even better than his great meeting with NATO allies. He blamed the media for being rude and going crazy. Barack Obama, giving his first major speech since leaving the presidency, warned those in power seek to undermine every institution or norm that gives democracy meaning. Strongman politics are ascending suddenly, whereby elections, some pretense of democracy, are maintained. Obama said that these are strange and uncertain times. A voting machine manufacturer admitted to installing remote access software in election management systems from 2000 to 2006. Election systems and software admitted that it provided remote connection software to a small number of customers after previously denying it. Those systems could have allowed voting machines to be manipulated, accessed, or hacked. In the six months following the passage of Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, worker pay has fallen steeply, while businesses have spent roughly $700 billion to repurchase their own stock. That drop in worker pay has affected 80% of industries and two-thirds of American metro areas. Day 545, July 18th. Trump tried to walk back his comments in Helsinki as a political firestorm engulfed his presidency. Reading from prepared remarks, Trump claimed he misspoke yesterday and meant to say, quote, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Trump also said he accepted the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia meddled in the election, but, quote, it could be other people also. Trump also asserted that Russians' actions had no impact at all on the election outcome. Trump had previously blamed the USA for acting with foolishness and stupidity toward Russia. The crisis is causing a rupture in Trump's support, with normally supportive outlets like Fox News and the Freedom Caucus rounding on Trump sharply. Polls show Trump's support dipping. The vast majority of Americans agree that Russia is, in fact, a hostile foreign power, and they do believe Russia interfered with our elections. Trump plans to give Air Force One a red, white, and blue makeover after negotiating a $3.9 billion fixed-price contract with Boeing for the planes. JFK had the planes painted a baby blue. Trump is the single biggest political advertiser on Facebook. His PAC has spent $275,000 on ads since early May. The second biggest spender is Planned Parenthood. The ads bought by Trump and his PAC were also seen the most by Facebook's users, having been viewed at least by 37 million people since May. The Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said there's now a new rising chorus of concern for business over Trump's tariffs. In addition, new data shows that the deficit will now pass $1 trillion by 2019. Trump's poll numbers have tumbled in the wake of Helsinki. Now, just 36% of Americans support him. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke with Tanner Woodford and Laura Bogan of the Chicago Design Museum about the founding of ChiDM. The current exhibit, Great Ideas of Humanity, and a revival of the Container Corporation of America's Great Ideas of Western Man campaign. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, and we're here today with uh, the uh, two leads at the Chicago Design Museum. We have Tanner Woodford and Lauren Bogan. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so you said you said Lauren Bogan in a, like a Mac voice. Like you Lauren really Bogan. <laughs> I I have a tendency to really do poorly at pronouncing names, and so even I like when I intentionally mispronounce it. I should just do that. That's uh, a way to go. Like just encase the embarrassment yeah. in the beginning. And Lauren Bogan. There you go. The, the, <laughs> Perfect. The Nailed other, it. <laughs> the other option 
is um, just to have you guys introduce yourselves, in which case <laughs> I can't mess that up. <laughs> Go ahead and tell them how you say your names. My name is Tanner Woodford. <laughs> Tanner. <laughs> but then it, it sounds like it's gross. gross. It always it does sound gross. <laughs> when you have Tanner. the guests introduce themselves, though, it always sounds a little like you you didn't even care enough to learn their name. I don't know. Which I, is, I've heard is it always on worrisome. Some, some other shows, and it sounds kind of nice. You get to define your own terms. This is who I am. This is what I do. You know how you go to Starbucks and they write the wrong name on the cup? Mm-hmm. The best I've ever gotten was Tater Woodford. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get the last name clearly, but Tater. Tater, is there a Tater here? Yeah, I think that might be me. I, I, I represent that. Yeah. <laughs> feels like me. So, Lauren, Tanner, please tell us about the Chicago Design Museum. Do you want to take the first? Nope. Go ahead. <laughs> Hello. Off <laughs> uh, to a great start. The Chicago <laughs> Design Museum is about five years old. We're in Block 37. We've done 13 exhibitions and about 150 events. We're, like Lumpen, completely independent. Uh, and that's it. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> and we're out. <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> Well, and you can tell us a little bit about the current show that you guys have up, uh, The Great Ideas of Humanity. Yeah, I often get caught saying this, but it's our best show yet. Good. Uh, I'm really happy with it in a lot of ways. This is our best show yet. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. We made it. <laughs> so there are about 65 pieces in the show. A lot of it is 2D work, posters. Uh, they're made from people all across the world, largely centered in Chicago. And the idea is that each piece of art uh, represents a quote. So we've given, we've assigned um, quotes to different artists and designers and had them sort of without any art direction on our behalf uh, illustrate the quote in some way. But it's based on something that happened once upon a time ago. It sure is. Yeah, so it's based on a historic advertising campaign from a Chicago company called Container Corporation of America. And the campaign ran in the mid-20th century, so like 1950? 50 to 75. 75 yeah. Um, and it essentially did the same thing. Container Corporation went out, spoke with artists and designers, uh, gave them quotes from the uh, Great Books of the Western World series, and had them create artwork for these quotes. And Container Corporation would then run them in uh, popular magazines like Time and Life and Fortune and those types of things um, with a little Container Corporation ad logo in the bottom uh, with the idea of that, you know, it wasn't advertising containers. <laughs> it was advertising culture and, and bringing that uh, out into the public. Was that a, a new idea at that point? I mean, I remember in like the early 90s when like Calvin Klein ads and Levi's ads on television started to just be like, my parents couldn't understand what was being advertised <laughs> because right. the, no product was actually being uh, announced in the, mm -hmm. in the commercial. So was this a new idea at the time? It was. It was uh, groundbreaking. Um, David Ogilvie has called it one of the best campaigns ever to appear in print. Uh, which really means a lot coming from somebody as sort of uh, amazing as David Ogilvie. Um, and at the time, you know, like Lauren said, it was about promoting cultural discourse, about getting people to look up and not think about advertisements, but think about sort of where they are in the world and uh, this deeper philosophy. Uh, and also sort of in addition to being a really groundbreaking advertising campaign, the Container Corporation of America also collected all of these works and eventually donated them to the Smithsonian. And some of them have become very important. You know, they worked with Magritte and Paul Rand and Saul Bass and these really wonderful uh, avant-garde artists and designers. And so uh, do you know what the intent at that time was? Like, why did the Container 
uh, company decide like that this is the thing that why make this crazy move? Yeah, <laughs> they had a history of modern artistic leaning advertising campaigns. So prior to uh, the Great Ideas of Western Man series, they did a, a couple of series, one of which um, happened during World War II, which was called Paperboard Goes to War, and was a very illustrative, uh, design-focused campaign explaining how Container Corporation uh, contributed to the war effort. Uh, they also did a series that was uh, Nations and States. So yeah, there, there was kind of this back back history for them of doing campaigns in this way, but they're, the owner of the company, uh, his name was Walter Pepke, um, he and his wife Elizabeth were disciples might be too strong of a word, but were kind of disciples of, of modern design. I think it's perfectly appropriate, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and they really believed in the impact that design could have in business um, from both a financial perspective, but also Pepke is, he has a quote, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's basically, you know, he believed that as a businessman, his only purpose wasn't to make money. It was also to give something back. And this was their effort to, to give something back as a corporation. It's kind of an interesting uh, strategy to business. <laughs> And then your strategy to bring life back into this idea started back in 2014? Yeah, and that was sort of at the urging of John Massey, who was a design director at Container Corporation of America for a number of years. And of the 25 years that Great Ideas of Western Man ran, uh, he was the, the design director there of, of that campaign for 17 years. The other seven was run by Herbert Beyer. So he was really doing a lot of big work. And we, we uh, spoke with John. He suggested we continue the campaign, kind of gave us some guiding principles. One is that we needed to rename it because it was the great ideas of Western man and women have great ideas and great ideas come from the East. And the other was he wanted to be able to uh, pull ads that he didn't think met the quality of the campaign. He never has. He's been He's seen every piece that's come through and he's been really uh, blown away by, way by them, which kind of keeps us up on our game as well. So the first iteration of Great Ideas of, Western, of, Great Ideas of Humanity, the campaign that we renamed and, and kind of relaunched, uh, ran on bus stops in downtown Chicago. And it was up for about a year as a partnership with D-Case in the city of Chicago. Uh, after that, we took the campaign to Hong Kong. We put up about 25 ads or yeah. so. And at that point, we extended beyond print uh, for the first time. So we, we commissioned some video pieces from Plural and Andy Gregg. Um, that was it at the time, I think, for video. Yes. And, yeah. um, and over the course of three days in Hong Kong, 120,000 people came and saw the show. And at that point, it was time to really take it to the next level. And, and so you're working with John Massey, who had worked with the Container Corporation. Is the Container Corporation still an entity? They were bought by, Mo I think it was Montgomery Ward in the late 70s. Okay. And then they've been bought and sold a few times since then. So there's no interest that we found. Okay, uh, so he's not connected with... No. those those buyouts either so like he's just functioning independently to help kind of reinvigorate this this campaign and incredibly excitingly a lot of folks from container corporation have come out of the woodwork for this exhibition so we have people stop by all the time that say i used to work with john and it's so exciting to see this story told today and that's been uh, an unintended sort of consequence of our actions for sure <laughs> Thank you.
1994 spoke with author Sergio de la Pava about his most recent book, Lost Empress. De la Pava discusses power, money, mass incarceration, and the NFL in this excerpt. Can the novel be a form of protest? Find out here. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Today we are going to be talking about a book that is in my hot little hand that you cannot see because this is radio and not television. It is called Lost Empress. It is out now from Pantheon Books, and we are joined live from, I believe, New Jersey by the, from the author, uh, Sergio De La Pava. Sergio, are you with us? I am. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I have to ask, uh, I, I know that you're a lawyer, I assume you're a sports fan, but do you have any professional experience in the sports field? Because some of the stuff you talked about was, was very astute, and as a former kind of inside guy, uh, I, I, had, I thought it was very resonant. I'm just like a very big sports fan. I don't know how intellectually defensible that is, and, but it's just an undeniable fact. And I've been probably an NFL fan since I was you know, 10 years old. And, you know, the interesting thing about sports, unlike other industries, or you want to call it, is that, you know, the, the innards of it are pretty, pretty widely available, unlike, uh, you know, other industries where I would not be, know where to start. Uh, just as a, as a brief example, for example, we, we, tend, we can, if we, w- or if we are curious enough, we can know what any NFL player makes for a living, um, which is, you know, fundamentally odd if you think about it. I, I couldn't really... Um, it's not easily accessible to find out, you know, the salary of, of, of the most, most people. So I think what comes across as, you know, maybe insider knowledge is really just extreme fandom and um, just existing in America where the NFL is covered pretty, uh, pretty circumspectly. Serge, I'll add to this. This is probably one of the shows that you'd be on where everybody's football fans. Um, we're all sports guys on this show. Um, I want to. You're not from New Jersey, though. You're from Queens, is that correct? I just want to make sure we have. I'm, that. I'm from New Jersey. I I live in Jersey. I've I've lived in Brooklyn. I work in Manhattan. Um, okay. I just want to make sure if we. You're, if you're not here, Jersey is basically just the, where I live in Jersey is basically just a suburb of of New York City. Um, so there's not this huge distinction between the two um, in the area where I live. Okay, I just want to make sure we didn't misquote where you lived. I thought you lived in Queens for some reason, but uh, it's because that's where the Mets are. Everybody, everybody thinks that everybody's from Queens because the Mets. Yeah, you are. You are <laughs> I just want to ask you. Queens two. is Mets and airport. That's right, Mets and and I'm a former New Yorker, so that's uh, okay, I'm a good. Mets and Jets fan. So are you a Giants or Jets? Well, I'm guessing you're a Giants fan because you're talking about the Tyree catch. I'm neither. I'm actually a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Oh, all right. Right. Uh, all right, all right. And yeah. and I'm ashamed to admit that that's basically front runner syndrome. Around the time I started watching football was when the Steelers were kind of. Uh, Dominant and Mean Joe Green and so on, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I don't think you can blame a nine-year-old for just kind of adopting whatever is most famous at the moment. Yeah, I was. I grew up with the Lions. Unfortunately, my grandfather had season tickets for his entire adult life, and we saw one playoff win, and there hasn't been one since then in 1992. So. Well, yeah, I bet New Yorkers can. Yeah, blame probably one of the few NFL teams that hasn't even been to a Super Bowl. Am I right about that? That is absolutely that is correct. correct. <laughs> sorry, sorry to bring that up. Yeah, I think it's the Lions not. and the Browns yeah. are the last two. So. Well, of course, the, yeah, the Browns. The Bra- yeah, the, right. Yeah, the Browns have a few NFL championships, whatever, whatever they're called at the time. Yeah, of course the Browns. Pre-merger. Yeah, the Browns are in the, the Baltimore Ravens, though. Really, if you think yes. about it. Mean, so let's be real here. That's mean. Uh, it is mean, but it's also <laughs> true. <laughs> um, you know, long-suffering Jets fan here. I got to take my shots where I can. Um, the other, it's interesting that you link football to mass incarceration, and you do that very uh, explicitly because, of course, there are 
so many stories about football right now with head injuries, with CTE, with uh, suicide. Junior Seau, of course, killed himself uh, very famously uh, after suffering CTE. There have been a number of Aaron Hernandez comes to mind, obviously, the, the New England Patriots guy who murdered people and was killed and in jail. He committed suicide in jail, did he not as well? Yes, and he uh, also, his brain looked like Swiss yeah, cheese. Swiss cheese. So it, it's interesting. I, I know you're a public defender. Could you take us a little bit through that? Because those passages in the book uh, also, I mean, that, that obviously was insider knowledge. This is something you deal with every day. So I wondered if you could just take us through a little bit about your feelings on that. We've had, uh, it's interesting because we had Myra Case in the show a little while ago. She works in the Denver prison system reading with prisoners uh, as part of the Open Prisons Project. Um, could you take us through a little bit about, you know, what your feelings are on the current state of mass incarceration in America? Because it's obviously something that's, that's very critical to our society at the moment. You know, in a, in a nutshell, for a very complex topic, you know, with mass incarceration you're talking about, in this country and around 1973, there was about, you know, give or take 200,000 people incarcerated. Today, there's over 2 million. Um, and the United States incarcerates a higher percentage of its population than just about any country, if not any other country. So it's, you're, you're talking about a widespread civil rights abuse. It's, uh, in my opinion, the the number one civil rights issue this country's facing at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I could say a lot more about that. But what I try to do maybe is just organically in the, in the sense of a long, complex, at times comic narrative, um, just maybe bring it from a different angle, come in from a different angle, maybe a subterranean um, way of viewing these issues. So one of the main characters is at Rikers Island. You spoke about Queens. Rikers Island is in Queens. It's a pretty, probably the most infamous jail in our country. And, you know, the, one of the main characters is, is incarcerated there throughout the, pretty much the entirety of the book. Um, I don't know what more I could say about it other than, you know, I think it's become the responsibility of every American citizen to educate themselves at least a little bit on, the, on this issue um, because it's... it's um, it's a human rights abuse that is just ongoing and shows no signs of abating. That that brings me to my next, well, statement and then question. But you know, it, I thought this book, you know, particularly with Nina, the um, the setting up the heist, um, you know, being running a, a professional sports franchise, um, you know, I, I think it for me anyway. When I when I read the novel, it was really about power and power structures in the United States and. You know, Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you're, you're dead on when you say that. Uh, I think more than even race or um, what, what we are confronted with, with things like the NFL mass incarceration, is the power structure and the powerful exploiting the powerless over and over and over in the history of this country. Um, so I'm sorry to interrupt you, but oh, I just, please, it's very no. gratifying to hear that because I, I do think that, you know, power and money and wealth and is is a central concern and please feel free to interrupt We're, we want to hear you not we hear ourselves all the time so please don't <laughs> don't apologize but you know moving moving forward on that topic too is just you know i i think we do talk about race in this country particularly you know now we're in the middle of some of the craziest political times in my lifetime anyway i'm in my late 40s but you know one thing we don't talk about is power you know what you said power versus the powerless and we have a lot of people in this country, you know, that regardless of race, you know, are powerless in the system 
and we have, um, you know, basically the wealthy continue to get wealthier. You know, we're, we're stacking the Supreme Court, business friendly, you know, taking away the rights of workers and people, you know, and it, it's, it just, it just continues. And, and, and it's almost like, a, you know, some kind of reverse samsara, you know, it's like this corporate structure that runs everything just gets bigger and bigger and, and more powerful and no matter who's president or who you know and uh i think i'm mumbling out out of my ears right now but it's just you well know. I, I wanted to add something to that um i thought it was interesting the way a lot of the wealthy wealthier characters were portrayed um as negligent or ignorant um a lot of the time and uh I think working class people, we, we sometimes think because a class is wealthy or certain people are wealthy that they're more intelligent. And I wanted to know if those character portrayals, Sergio, were from um, seething internal anger or from external experience. You know, there's... there's um, go ahead, go ahead. Almost everything I do uh, stems from anger, and I'm ashamed to admit... But um, don't be. It, I think it, when you say this thing about the negligence of the rich, there's a section in the book in which Dia, who's you know a recent college grad working for Nino, who's a billionaire basically, or at least has access to billions, um, where you know Dia's kind of ashamed, or afraid to bring up the fact that she hasn't been paid or like what her salary is going to be, and it's not yeah. that that yeah. Nina Gill is actively. Uh, conspiring against Dia, it's that she has no conception of what it means to literally need money to keep your phone on. Um, so I'm in the position where every day I go to a public defender office in Manhattan and I'm confronted with people who, when I ask them why they didn't come to court, they can truthfully answer that they didn't have the money for the subway fare, um, which is uh, currently, I believe, $2.75, and they are not lying. So I, every day, am confronted with this incredible uh, dichotomy and gap. Uh, when you're talking about Manhattan, you're talking about, the, I would guess, the richest real estate in the country. But I see everyday people who, you know, can't afford to go to McDonald's during the lunch break. So it's hard not to get angry at something like that. Um, and that's not to demonize any particular section of people. It's more a question of... You know, certain segments of our society are privileged to not have to think about these things. And then, unfortunately, they decide they will not think about these things. So when we talk about the power versus the powerless, and you see a campaign to take the defenseless and then deny them basic human, you know, dignities like health care, which is just mind-boggling that you would make that your platform. But as you look and you read up on these things and you follow our political situation even remotely, you see basically a desire on the part of some people to make the defenseless even more vulnerable, which is hard to fathom, um, but it's hard to draw any other conclusion. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.